Deke Shock. Deke Shock. Hello, Shock Monkeys. It's Master Torgo talking to you. Uh, we are not doing a regular show this week. We had a hard time getting together due to uh, previous engagements and illnesses. And so we decided to put together this special edition, Geek Shock. This week, we are featuring Commander K's interview with Oliver Brackenberry. He is the editor and publisher of New Edge Sword and Sorcery magazine. You can learn more about it at NewEdgeSwordAndSorcery.com. Kirsten put together a fantastic interview, and we can't wait to share it with you here. So with no further ado, take it away, Kirsten. Greetings, everyone. Geek Shock, Shock Monkeys. Commander K here, speaking to Oliver Brackenbury. He is the editor of the New Age Sword and Sorcery magazine, as well as a writer of various other... Uh, scripts, books. You've you've actually done a few things, haven't you? Yeah, yeah. I um, I've got a couple of novels out there. Uh, just the one short story. I haven't done as much of that as I'd like to, though. I'm trying to correct it. I've got two out in submissions right now, uh, and that is because the majority of my creative work as an adult has been writing screenplays, which, as anybody who does that will tell you, is a great way to put like a novel's worth of effort into something that if it doesn't get made, like twelve people will read. Mm. So. I won't lie. Definitely part of the reason I, I was like, maybe I'll do some prose because <laughs> I guess I'm more people to read this stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, you know, I mean, I'm, I'm like a lot of people right now. I've got a couple of projects that like might happen. So fingers crossed, maybe I'll get to come back on here and talk about a TV show next year. Um, wow. We'll see. <laughs> no guarantees on that. In the meanwhile, right. uh, yeah, no, I have, I have uh, short stories, novels. I wouldn't mind doing a novella. I've got a couple of things in my mind. And uh, this this here magazine, New Edge Sword and Sorcery, plus uh, my writing podcast. So I'm writing a novel, which is about writing overall and is kind of my high concept thing where it's like, follow me while I write my sword and sorcery, you know, novel uh, mm-hmm. and break it up with interviews of people who tend to be related to sword and sorcery because that's the genre of the book I'm doing. Uh, so, yeah, so a whole bunch of different things. I'm going to have to at some point just jump on to episode one and start listening. I've been picking and choosing episodes from your podcast to listen to. The, the one I was really interested in for obvious reasons relating to New Edge was uh, with uh, Saf Magliano, your professional young person. Yeah, Soph. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, but yeah, S-O-F, right? So how do you pronounce that? Yeah, Sophie. No, yeah. Um, yeah, yeah. That was a very fun one. And also a, probably the most popular episode I've done this year. People oh, really? really left all over. They were very curious. Mm-hmm. And I can see why, because, yeah, like... At least if, in what I've seen, I'm not omniscient, but you know, what I've seen and experienced, your standard current sword and sorcery fan is a white guy between 35 and 60. Mm. And so, you know, nothing wrong with that. I just turned 40. But, <laughs> but you know, I, I in a variety of venues I've, uh, in scenes I've been a part of, I have noticed that like, if that is like 99% of your membership of a community, that's... That's not a good recipe for long-term survivability. You really do want to be trying to bring in uh, younger people and more diverse people to grow the scene, to add to the middle-aged white guys, um, and keep it vibrant and keep it going forward, right? Otherwise, after enough time passes, they won't be middle-aged white guys. It'll be a retirement home. And then after that, mm, nobody's reading Sword and Sorcery anymore. <laughs> 
it's kind of interesting how it's gone through how sword and sorcery has gone through cycles because a lot of the older white guys you're talking about got into sword and sorcery with the 70s resurgence and the uh the 80s cinema explosion such as it was i mean we're talking about the genesis uh that goes all the way back to the uh Oh boy, the, the the phrase "the beginning of the twentieth century," you know? Yeah, yeah, the pulps, yeah. Um, and you can even go a little before for some influences like Lord Dunsany, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I'm talking come back to that second wave of SNS in the sixties, seventies, sort of through to the early, you know, early to mid eighties, wherever you want to exactly call it for uh, the the SNS uh, second wave dying. But, you know, I've got big respect for the people who participated in that. And in fact, one of them is in the magazine. David C. White uh, is one of the authors I reached out to. I interviewed him for the podcast. He was actually right before Soph there. Uh, did a big two-parter. We just talked so much. Yes, I saw <laughs> that. I saw that. I, that's like next on the list to listen to, especially because you mentioned in your notes, I think it's part two, you talk about the implosion. Yeah, because I figure it's worth understanding it and and the opportunity to talk to someone who actually was like a working writer in the genre when it happened is, you know, it's an opportunity. And without giving away too much to the episode, because I mean, hey, go listen to it, kids. Uh, It it sort of essentially came down to the genre having sort of stagnated and a lot of the editors who were running the show then not wanting to change with tastes or to even try to offer a variety in general, never mind accommodating changing tastes, just to have a variety. And so understandably, like it just kind of dried up because people were like, okay, I've seen this. You know, I've been seeing the same kind of thing overall mm. for at least the last like 10 years or whatever. And other people are running other things. So I want to check it out. And so and that was unfortunate for the few people who were doing different things. Like poor Charles Saunders infamously kind of got shafted by like a, a couple of things, publishing decisions, but also just the fact that his Magnificent Tomorrow books came in near the end. Yes. Of, uh, yes. The wave which is a bummer. Um, yeah, and I mean, I, I, yeah, I really, I'm looking forward to, if we get to crowdfund issues one and two of New Edge Sword and Sorcery, uh, Milton Davis, bless him, has committed to writing a profile on Saunders for issue one. So uh, I'll do what I can to try and add to the wave of, of recognition that has been building for him uh, since, his, unfortunately, his uh, untimely death, uh, I believe, two years ago almost now. Yeah, um, yeah I yeah. remember that. But yeah, uh, yeah, no, uh, the second wave is important. You know, I, I love the old stuff. You know, I, I think sometimes people feel a little threatened when I say, oh, you know, I want to shake things up. I want to do what I can. Like, I mean, I'm just one guy with one magazine, but I want to do what I can to kind of bring in fresh blood, to try new things, to explore themes that you don't see as often in sword and sorcery, to even maybe mess around with like different story structures, as well as, of course, the diversity, equity, inclusion angle that is so key for, as I say, bringing in more people and making them mm-hmm. feel comfortable to come in as fans and uh, as creators and so on. Um, because, yeah, you just can't grow a scene without reaching outside of it. But I have volunteered for the last six years at the Merrill Collection in Toronto, a uh, collection of speculative oh, yeah. fiction, which is the Western Hemisphere's largest publicly accessible archive of speculative fiction. And it's there that I have gone through their 80,000-plus items to enjoy reading original editions of all kinds of sword and sorcery through the entire canon, all the way to the beginning, including some of the original pulp issues. They have incredible runs of pulps there. And I have enjoyed learning from it because I think, you know, if you want to build on something, you should understand what you're building on, right? Mm-hmm, <laughs> mm-hmm. And also because I think it's a false choice when people hear, oh, I want to do new things. And they go, oh, no, you're going to take away my Lancer Conan's. Like, no, I'm not. First of all, I've got Lancer Conan's. Second of all, <laughs> like, why do you, you don't have to choose between those two things? Like, don't be frightened of change. Don't be frightened of like new things coming in. 
there's no need because you're still going to have the classic texts on your shelf. You're still going to be able to like find more at secondhand bookstores and ideally reprints will continue to happen. I don't want to spoil who it is, but I, one of my little fantasies for if this thing keeps going, this magazine keeps building, uh, there is an author I want to reach out to about reprinting uh, her short run of uh, stories for a character from the loose seventies that just never got any more recognition. And I would love to do that. So mm-hmm. yeah. And that's partly why our logo is, designed by Meg Berry, a good friend of mine. Uh, it's a battle axe, but it's also like the two-faced Janus with one nice. looking to the left, uh, which to me is to the past, right? Looking, you know, which is part of the whole ethos of the magazine, showing respect for the past, teaching people about more creators from uh, back in the day that don't maybe get as talked about as often as good old Libra Moorcock Howard. Um, and then the other face is looking forward to all the new exciting stuff. So yeah, like why not both, you know? <laughs> yeah, I, um, I actually... Uh... That's one of the things I really appreciate about the new edge is is the appreciation, the uh, looking back and uh, just finding the value because it, it I I remember there would be vacillations in scholarship and people talking and sometimes Howard is great and then sometimes you know they're saying he's a hack or sometimes they're and it just it just goes all over the place and it's being able to talk with other people and actually finding similar opinions and positions as well as new ones that are more illuminating has been one of the exciting things for me. One of the happy things for me on the Whetstone discord, Hmm. which is uh, where um, all of this uh, sprang out. Yeah. Yeah. The magazine absolutely could not happen without it. So yeah. Shout out to Whetstone magazine and their magnificent discord. Easily my favorite place to hang out online since I joined about a year ago. Mm-hmm. And I think all of the 22 people who joined me in making this magazine happen, I think maybe only two or three came from outside of that community. <laughs> wow. So yeah, would would not have happened without the cool people I befriended uh, in the last yeah. year. Um, well, I remember I remember watching so many discussions and just watching this gradual kind of uh, semi-truck accident where you like sort of just become the editor <laughs> and and the whole magazine it's just like watching this in slow motion this uh this this collision happen where suddenly you're editing a magazine and putting this out yeah it was semi unexpected like the funny thing is um so about a little over two years ago like just when the pandemic was getting rolling that special collection, the Merrill Collection, I'm a member of a volunteer group, like I mentioned, dedicated to promoting awareness of it, right? And as part of that, I was like, what if we did a magazine? I don't know. And I had just fallen in love with Howard Andrew Jones' magazine, Tales from the Edition Skull. So I reached out to Howard thinking just a quick email, but he's a lovely guy. He said, oh, give me a call. You know, he gave me like an hour of his time. What a, what a cool dude. He never, he didn't know who I was. And so we just talked through the, you know, nuts and bolts of like the skull and his experience with magazines and publications in general. I realized I wasn't ready, but it was still in the back of my mind, right? And so fast forward to spring of this year, and it was like late April, and I just, you know, every scene has circular discussions, and I had already noticed that Sword and Sorcery had this sort of circular discussion that would come up where somebody goes, gosh darn it, why don't more people enjoy Sword and Sorcery? I don't understand what's going on. And I would, and yeah, nearly, there would be about like five or six things that you knew would be said, and it would kind of go around in a circle, and then it would be over, and nothing else would have been accomplished, and that's fine, whatever, everybody's, like I said, everything's got circular conversations. But there's something in me. I'm a very, I'm a, I'm an organizer. I'm Johnny extrovert. I love organizing. I love being like goal oriented. And I saw when that conversation cropped up, I was like, how can we make this more like a line that goes somewhere than the circle it usually is? And I can only take credit for asking this question. I will not take credit for everything that came after. 
Um, but I just said, hey, 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 instead of like asking broadly, like, you know, what, well, how do we make this uh, more people read? I don't know, you know, like, how do we get specific? Like, how do we get younger readers? And that's all I did. All I did was just make that question a little more specific and boom, like three straight days of the most thunderous conversation I'd ever seen on that server happened. And it was very vigorous. It was very passionate. It was very friendly, which I really like about the tavern, you know, it was a bunch of just arguing about whatever. Um, and by the time it was over, I remember kind of like sitting back and going, wow, okay, uh, there's some energy here. Where can this go? I don't know. I don't know. And there were still a few more weeks of just everybody kind of talking through the nuts and bolts of this and that, and what should it be? And, you know, and Howard, bless him, you know, he coined the term New Edge back in the 2000s. Uh, there's actually a, a short essay by him in the magazine about that, so I won't get into too much detail. But he coined it along with some friends back then. And I would say, this is my assessment, but based on what Howard's told me and, and what I've heard and so on, um, great idea, wrong time. It was a little too early. There was still uh, some lingering stigma with sword and sorcery left over from some of the, let's say, lesser publications and films of the 80s. The Fur Diaper Brigade, which, like, man, I have love for B-movies. Like, don't get me wrong. But, uh, you know, I've got a bunch of Russ Meyer DVDs, like, for God's sake. But it doesn't change the fact that uh, there was a stigma of, like, oh, sword and sorcery is very shallow. It's very dumb, whatever. And so I think uh, maybe that, unfortunately, was still lingering, and that kind of played into the term kind of dying off pretty quickly. But Howard brought it up, uh, you know, when we had this conversation in the spring, and it was like, yeah, you know, it's been about 15 years or whatever. Maybe the time is ripe, you know, and it's a cool term, new edge. You know, it, yeah. like the fact that it suggests like, okay, we're not like replacing, you know, let's say the, the metaphorical sword or battle axe uh, right. of, of sword right. and sorcery. We're sharpening this sucker. We're keeping some, you know, what worked from the old tales and bringing it forward while leaving, say, like crusty old attitudes and stuff uh, about, you know, not trying things or, you know, the famously somewhat bigoted attitudes of older authors who were of their time, whatever. Um, leave that stuff behind. Take the cool, take the cool stuff. Take the the the, the non-codified fantastic elements, which I love. I love that anytime you run into some horrible creature or magic in sword and sorcery, you know, broad statement. Of course, there's one or two exceptions waiting for me out there, but by and large, it's nothing you're going to run into in a DD monster manual. You're not going to see a horrible weird thing and be like, oh, I know the rules for this, whatever. You right. know, like a silver bullet kills a werewolf, whatever. You know, so I, I love that unpredictability of it, or the fast pacing, or all, well, you know, all the things we love about this genre. Um, bring the bring that stuff forward. So yeah, I was like, yeah, New Edge Sword and Sorcery, that's awesome. And by somewhere in early June, I forget who said it, but some son of a bitch was like, oh yeah, Oliver, you're talking a lot because you're a guy who talks a lot, like I say, Johnny Extrovert. And meanwhile, that volunteer group wasn't doing a lot because of COVID, so all my uh, organizer muscles were like slack. And then they got activated by this conversation ongoing mm. on the server. Uh, you know, I was like, oh, what if we did something? I don't know. You know, and somebody's like, Oliver, why don't you uh, edit an anthology? I'm like, well, that's an easy thing to ask someone else to do. I remember that actually. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I'm good natured, but you know, I was like, oh yeah, okay, sure. Whatever. I went to bed that night and I remember just laying there and I was sort of slowly falling asleep and going, oh, wait, remember how you went to a magazine two years ago? Shit. And so I woke up the next morning and I was like, yeah, I think, what if a, okay, no, no anthology. Thank you. But what if, what if magazine would mm -hmm. people help me because I can't do that all on my own. And this is where the community really came through immediately. Like a bunch of people were volunteering and like, I, you know, asked uh, Nathan Webb uh, who had just put out his Wingraph magazine of cozy fantasy and Rake Hell his uh, sort of swashbuckling uh, fiction magazine, very, you know, kissing cousins of sword and sorcery stuff. And I was like, Hey man, like you, you know more about this than I do. I think do you want to come on? and do like the layout and design and be kind of my like my second command on this thing and he was like yeah let's do it and so that started with with nathan and then from there you know people uh, either reached out to them or they just volunteered you know jordan douglas uh, smith of the dark crusade podcast 
is a professional proofreader and he just came out of nowhere and was like, hey, do you want a proofreader? And I was like, yes, because boy, does that help you set your publication apart from a lot of self-pub stuff, but, you know, mm. shade on anybody in particular. I mean, proofreading costs money, right? Um, I totally get like the limitations of resources, but let's be frank, we've all read a lot of self-pub stuff where you think, God, okay, I'm enjoying this, but the typos and everything are really kicking yeah. me out of it. Yeah. Um, so I, I feel absolutely, you know, hashtag blessed uh, to have <laughs> Jordan on the team. And he's been valuable in other ways, too. But that's definitely been the main thing. Um, so, yeah, you know, so, you know, it's like the summer project right over June, July, August. I've just been furiously working away there. And you, you, if you look for it, you can see a lot of the st- people in the table of contents have also been interviewed in my podcast where I've. It's a nice way to make connections with people, as I'm sure you know. You know, mm-hmm. it gives you an excuse to reach out to folks that otherwise you might just be like, oh, I like your books. Hi. Like, you know, I know. I just had like, that hey. moment. <laughs> Actually, yeah. Oh, yeah. I'm, the, I'm the big advocate for Hawk the Slayer on the Discord. Huh. And I have Garth Ennis's comics. I met him at Las Vegas uh, Amazing nice. Comic Con, got him to sign the comics. And I totally just foom, foom, huff, love. My uh, my friends were laughing at me because I I totally just flubbed the meeting. Oh, so so you know it, it it really was like oh, I love the books. Oh my god! And and that's about as far as I got. Our resident Canadian Maple Leaf Matt, uh, who's uh, from the uh, GTA, actually was laughing at me because yeah, he said he said uh, Ennis was just staring at me like uh, okay, all right, yeah, okay, yeah. So, well, I mean, the, the thing is, when that happens to you, right, you, at least you can think, well, I'm definitely not the only person who's done this with him. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. Right. He'll forget but me by breakfast tomorrow. <laughs> the, the energy. I mean, one of the amazing things about this was the energy that just exploded once you said, OK, let's let's uh, let's talk about actually doing this. And there was this explosion of energy. And it, it's phenomenal. Because here we are, you're putting out issue zero. This whole thing just started a few months ago in terms of getting everything rolling. That's actually quite amazing. Yeah, it was like early, but not definitely not not June first. So somewhere early to mid June, and now you know September thirtieth. I just made it. I kept saying in public, you know what? I won't say a specific day. That will be too tight. I'll say sometime in September. And then lo and behold, the very last day of September, you just got it out. Uh, I mean, who was going to yell at me? But still, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, yeah, like three and a half-ish to four months is a really quick turnaround. I've actually was would say a few times to, to Nathan when we were, you know, slaving away on this thing and be like, man, if we um, successfully crowdfund issues one and two and we're going to put those each out in approximately six months each, you know, that'll be luxurious because, you know, we'll have like extra time to make the damn things and we won't have to like invent a bunch of stuff. We have a logo now. We have mm-hmm. a table of contents and layout basic design that we can kind of pour content into. Whereas we were making the damn mold, <laughs> you know, over mm-hmm. the course of the summer and uh, figuring out all this stuff last second too sometimes, not because we were, you know, buffoons, but because when everybody's working for, it's a passion project, right? I got to be clear, nobody got paid for this. Total mm-hmm. passion project. And as a result, you have to, you know, you got to work with people's schedules. I mean, you still have to when money's involved, but I mean, it's a little, you can be a little more like, hey, come on, when there's money, uh, when there's no money, right. it's, it's very much just like doing what you can when you can. And so I'm very proud of everyone involved for pulling their thumbs out and doing their best around their day jobs, around their kids, around their, you know, the, the other aspects of their, their free time to, to make this thing happen and put something together that I feel looks very professional. You know, I have yet to get my copy in the mail of the hardcover. I'm looking forward to that. But, mm-hmm. you know, I've got my uh, softcover proofing uh, copy in my hand here. And, of course, listen, you can't see this, 
But when it came in, I was like, you know, this is actually better than I was expecting from Amazon POD, which of course we wanted to use this time because trying to figure out how to get a printer and all that stuff on top of everything else would have been madness. It, it right. definitely would have been way too much this time around. And also it was very important to me to just like, See if we like making the magazine before putting a lot of extra infrastructure into like, you know, get a, pr- you know, distributor, get a printer, blah, 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 blah. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, spoiler listener, uh, I do. And I think everybody involved does. I've, I've you know, certainly the, the core staff, I've talked with them all and they would love to do more of it. And, uh, you know, I'm pretty confident we're bringing back all the writers. Uh, we'll spread them out over issues one and two, uh, all the writers mm-hmm. zero. But yeah, issue zero is like a prototype and a promotional tool. That's how I saw it. I was thinking pretty far ahead when I committed to this because I have done indie film. I've done a traditionally published novel. I've done a self-published novel. I've done a web uh, series, whatever. I've done a bunch of artistic collaborative projects with groups. And my point mentioning that is that I have definitely got out of my system the, can I do this of a project? Like, I know I can complete projects. Like, forgive me if that sounds conceited, but like, I've literally got a track record. I've done it. So Mm -hmm. I know I can do that. I don't need to prove that to myself or anyone else. So when I said, okay, I'm going to edit this magazine, I was like, well, what are your goals here, Buster? You know, looking in the mirror. And I thought, yeah, I, you know what? I want to make this like as professional as possible within the limits of resources. And I want to take this forward and make it like an ongoing thing that can just keep snowballing and getting bigger with time, you know, if the demand is there, obviously. And so I thought, okay, issue zero, you know what? We're not going to try and crowdfund this because we haven't proven ourselves yet in this field. I can't point to my like web series and say I can do a good magazine. And so... I thought, okay, we'll do issue zero. We'll just focus on getting it out. We'll get it out as cheaply as humanly possible. Uh, the EPUB slash PDF, you know, the electronic release is free. I can't stress that enough. That is free, folks. If you want to check that out, the EPUB is good for your e-readers. The PDF is good if you want to see like the very easy layout. Yeah, very easy. I did it. I did it the other day when you sent me that leak right there on Pay PayHip. And, yeah, because uh, yeah. Amazon bang, doesn't boom. like selling things for free, right? So I so I had to go elsewhere. But I, I put on PayHip, which is kind of like Gumroad if you haven't heard of PayHip. And uh, yeah, easy peasy. Just you know, grab it off there, download, pay nothing. It's great. And on Amazon, we've got uh, print on demand for a soft cover, but also a gorgeous. I'm hoping. <laughs> I like to say I've got it in the mail yet, but the design is nice. I, I will say, mm-hmm. uh, gorgeous uh, patent pending, whatever uh, hardcover, which I can't name another store and sorcery publication uh, that does that, not in magazine format anyway. Right. And I got to bounce it. wouldn't have occurred to me except I got really lucky. I was visiting my folks back in June kind of thinking, okay, what are we going to do? What are we going to do? And at that point, it was so early. My brain, I, you know, I'd ask myself, how are we going to format this thing? And my brain would be like, uh, rip off the skull, which like <laughs> I never would have done, but that's where I was at. I was like, I don't know. Sure. And then um, I was visiting my folks and I was like, dad, what's that? What's that weird mouse pad you got there? And I looked, and it was like a hardcover magazine. I never even thought of making a magazine mm-hmm. hardcover, you yeah. know? And I pulled it out, and it was this th- a magazine that a lot of Americans recognize called Horizon from uh, 68, this particular issue. And I just started looking through it, and I was like, this is classy as hell. And mm. so I was like, okay, I think maybe there's something like this. You know, we didn't, like, carbon copy it, but definitely that was our main inspiration for layout and design. And so, yeah, lovely, beautiful hardcover is an option. And both are being sold at cost which means no profit because i did not feel i want to get it out there as much as possible so cheap as possible but i also mm-hmm. didn't feel comfortable me personally making a profit when i've asked everybody to contribute for free like that's just what are you doing so yeah the soft cover is four measly dollars us the hard cover is 12 dollars us which is nothing for hardcover and it gets you 80 pages with six short stories and, and Seven, six, seven, whatever. Lots of non-fiction. Uh, yes. <laughs> sure of essays, long-form interview uh, with Milton Davis, who I mentioned earlier, and a uh, book review of a contemporary uh, SNS text. 
and lots of lovely art. I'm very proud on the budget we had of zero dollars to have gotten an original painted cover and original black and white illustrations, one for each, uh, well, multiple for one of them because the writer was also an artist. So he was like, can I do more art? And I was like, yes. Mm -hmm. uh, but yeah, original black and white art for every single one of the pieces of fiction and some lovely reprinted black and white art uh, to go with the non-fiction. So yeah, like it's, it's pretty profesh if I may get away with saying that. And I, I, I was actually pretty impressed with it. That pencil drawing that leads in right at the beginning to Daryl's story is extraordinary. Who is yes. that artist? I can't yeah, even figure it out. That artist is uh, Hardeep, A-U-J-L-A, uh, -A Ajla. Okay. I've never heard it said out loud. Pardon me, Hardeep, uh, if you hear this. But uh, yeah, Hardeep, A-U-G, oh, God, Oliver, A-U-J-L-A, you son of a bitch, Oliver. Anyway, Hardeep, <laughs> who is a very cool dude who deserves better than me mangling his last name. Sorry, man. Uh, yeah, yeah, he's on Instagram. Uh, we asked another thing too. You'll see in the TOC, we put anybody who had an Instagram account, which was pretty much all of the artists, uh, we put their that. tag by their name because that's how you find artists by and large. Mm -hmm. I, mean, I know there's other venues, but you know. So yeah, hopefully people check that out. We also have some pretty cool uh, SMS uh, folk in there. In terms of the artists, I was thinking of Morgan King, whose illustration uh, that was used in J.M. Clark's story was kind of our first art preview to put out there of the hero Quimbe surfing uh, an evil wizard, like cheese gratering him while surfing him down the side of a mountain. It's just such a cool <laughs> gonzo moment illustrated yes. by the guy who directed Spine of Night, the rotoscoped sword and sorcery uh, film that took like eight years to make and came out last year with like Lucy mm -hmm. Wallace as one of the main characters. How cool is that? You know, getting him to do some of the art was very pleasing. So yeah, like we, we, I, I'm just gonna say we did well, we did well. And this isn't, you know, a like I say, conceit, I think it's this well-earned pride and workmanship, which is something that means a lot to me. Mm -hmm. uh, like I said, I've done a lot of things for the sake of doing them. This, I was like, I wanna do it well. I wanna do it well as I can. And I'm already kind of laying track to, uh, as I mentioned before, try and crowdfund issues one and two uh, together. I'm hoping to do this in February. The way to be told when this is happening and just in general, like when there's a new issue of the magazine or whatever, would be to sign up for our mailing list, which I know everybody's like, ah, email. But here's the thing. Uh, I know I'm the same way. So the mailing list is super low intensity. Like if you want regular bits and pieces of like cool facts, articles, whatever, follow us on social media, follow us on Twitter, Instagram, you know, Facebook, we got a page there. But if you just want to be told once in a blue moon, oh, there's a new issue or, oh, there's crowdfunding for new issues. Like that's it, mailing list. And if there's one thing any of you out there are maybe thinking about crowdfunding, something might want to know is certainly that mailing lists are like the, the yardstick of like, okay, is this going to succeed? You know, yeah. I mean, you maybe have a huge audience elsewhere or something, right? But certainly, yeah. like, I was, I went around talking to the different fulfillment companies, like Backerkit and those kind of guys, you know, the people who help make sure that the campaign gets the thing to the people. And I eventually went with someone else, uh, which I won't get into for now, talking to Backerkit and other fulfillment companies. Every single one of them, first thing they said to me was, well, how big is your mailing list? And so, yeah, like, mm -hmm. building that up mm -hmm. is definitely a goal. I'm very proud that we got it up to a little over 420 eh, in the couple of months, uh, but, you know, before uh, launching uh, the magazine uh, yesterday. Yeah, I, I'm hoping to get that thing over 1,000 at least uh, before I commit to the crowdfunding campaign. Like I said, I'm looking into it. I'm setting up because I'm thinking we'll get there. I've got faith. Right. But, yeah, you need a lot of people if you're going to fund something that's a few a few grand at least. As that as was one of... That was one of our goals with uh, the Las Vegas Comic-Con, actually, was building a mailing list. Vlarg, uh, Barry Robb, is uh, sort of our marketing guy because that's what he does. That's his job in real life. And uh, that was one of the things that was like the, the major thing he really wanted to build up was our mailing list. 
Is this uh, all found at newedgeswordandsorcery.com? You betcha. Yeah, no, you just go there right on the main page. Big, easy to find buttons for <laughs> going to the EPUB, the soft cover, the hard cover, and the mailing list. Mm-hmm. And the little menu at the top kept it simple. You know, this is like about, uh, you know, press. Because right. it's fun to right. show off, you know, articles, interviews, and things like that, which I'm working hard at building right this second talking to you, hey. Uh, and uh, and a little like, you know, want more button, which basically is more, you know, another ad for the mailing list, just explaining like, hey, thanks for checking out the magazine. You know, here's how it's going to keep going. Mailing list is a big part of that. But, you know, obviously, like, we want to see how many people download the EPUB, how many people get the hard and soft cover. Uh, you know, I was very happy we broke, like, 100 downloads before lunch uh, on the day of launch, which, I mean, is nothing to a lot of publications. But for a brand new one, I don't know, not too bad, not too bad. And it's kept yeah. going, it's kept going. So I'm, I'm happy as we talk and record this. It's been not quite 36 hours uh, since we launched. And I'm pretty happy wow. with, like, the numbers that have come in. Uh, so yeah, that's pretty cool, but I'm still working hard on promoting the thing and taking it further. Uh, anyway, promotion maybe is not the most exciting thing for people to hear about, but back to what I was saying about the crowdfunding campaign, like I say, we're hoping to do that in February. As you can imagine, I have a fantasy list of authors that I want to directly solicit. We're not open for submissions. Sorry, folks. Uh, but we will be eventually. It's just this whole thing of me trying to make sure that I get each part of the thing down before trying another thing on top. So it's like, I just want to be like, can I make the magazine? Okay. I think so. Yes. Uh, now I will look into crowdfunding to, you know, get professional printers and do things a little higher quality, uh, yada, yada, and pay people. Cause that's the other thing too. I, I'm not going to ask people, <laughs> there's a joke in indie film that goes around where it's like, Hey man, if you come work on my film for free, that could earn you the opportunity to work on my next film for free. <laughs> right. I don't yeah. want to do that to people. I don't want to do that to people. So I was very upfront of her, you know, every single one of the contributors, I said, look, I'm asking you for your labor for free for this thing. If you dig the idea, if you dig what it's about. Yeah, get on in there. If you don't, tell me to go away. I'm not going to ask anybody, like, make anybody feel like they're required to give me their labor for free. That's bullshit. But give it to me for free this time. And that'll let us make this proof that, like, we can make a cool thing. And then we can use that as a leaping, you know, platform to get to better things where we get paid, heaven forbid. And so the crowdfunding campaign, I want to bring in uh, more writers and more artists because I'll have two issues to fill, right? And I've got some names I'm hoping to approach. We'll see what happens. I got a friend hooked me up with an email address for for an author that people will get pretty excited about uh, just last week. So fingers crossed that they say hello when I uh, reach out to them. And I also want to say, like I say, produce a higher quality product, which I think is quite doable uh, through professional printers. And I also want to get into stretch goals that like pay the creators more. So currently as it stands, I'll be paying semi-pro rates. So like three cents a word for the writers. But I want to use something that, uh, shout out to Iron Spike at uh, Iron Circus Comics, who she is a real Kickstarter pioneer, and she established a model where her stretch goals for like her comic anthologies be like pay bumps for the creators. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, my pay bumps are going to be like, first one, uh, you know, first stretch goal, four cents a word for the authors, next pay bump, 25% more for the artists. And five cents for the writers, back and forth, back and forth, until we get the writers up to eight cents a word and the artists to like twice what the original is. And only then are we going to get into what I've been jokingly calling like a pony, like the you know the kind of thing that gets people like really really excited, like oh uh, you know maybe an art insert from a big time artist or double the amount of interior illustrations. That's definitely one I want to put on the stretch goals. Mm-hmm. Like, I'm proud of the art we have in this issue zero, but I want more art. Who doesn't want more art? And so on and so forth. You know, well, like I say, I'm still figuring it out, but. I'm a little ambitious about it, but I figure if you're not being ambitious, then, eh, you know, what's the point? <laughs> well, I, you know, it, it uh, the ambition is already uh, already seen. I, 
I don't know. You've established a um, a tradition with how quick you got out zero. I don't know if this six month thing, Oliver. That's gonna <laughs> you 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 may you may be a quarterly whether you want to or not. I'm f- <laughs> yeah, zero zero comment on that. Look, if we look, if, if the if this first campaign does like blows the roof off, maybe it would go to quarterly eventually. Mm-hmm. But it's just a case of building momentum and seeing how much, frankly, money comes in, you know? Right. Like, some people do these kind of magazines as, like, their hobby and then, you know, whatever. Who cares about money? That's cool. Me, like I said, like, I, I've, I've done things for the sake of doing things. I'm good. Uh, for this, I, I want to bring in money to pay contributors well, because how can you expect writers to get better if they can't dedicate the time to the writing? And what buys you time to write in our late capitalist hellhole? Money. So, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Absolutely. So, yeah, you know, and it shows respect, frankly, to pay them. And I mean, I don't know what it's going to work out to right now. Uh, but yeah, it sounds anathema to so many people, but I'm going to pay the staff. And, you know, I want to, yeah. you know, probably just an honorarium to begin with, uh, but I want to pay them, you know, eventually enough to really justify their time. And that also means paying myself because otherwise, I know it's not, I can already hear some people being like, ah, oh, what is this, a money grab? Blah, blah, which, first of all, like, have you met indie publishing? What are you talking about if you think that's a cash yeah. grab? Like, right. I, would, I would get an MBA and go do something else entirely if that, if, like, that was my motivation. But mm-hmm. I, I'm just saying to, to all you out there who have your own sort of indie projects, whether it's um, film or a magazine or whatever, you know, is when you can, you do need to look at paying yourself. And the reason is not because, oh, you're going to get rich or, or whatever. Or some It's not a scam. It's because if you want to keep the thing going, right, well, then you got to give yourself some money to justify the time and energy you put into it. Because otherwise, when life gets tough, and it always does sooner or later, right, when life gets tough next, and you're going, oh, geez, you know, I've only got so much time and energy because uh, my car broke down or somebody's sick or some big thing is happening in my life. What goes first? The stuff that doesn't earn money. So if you are paying yourself what you can mm-hmm. do your magazine, to do your film, to do your whatever, that protects the project against future potential catastrophes and will help keep it going forward, which in turn helps you keep paying your collaborators, your creators, right? I want to pay writers so much it's embarrassing, hence my stretch goal model. You know, like after those or ponies I mentioned, it then just reverts to infinite pay bumps. As long as mm-hmm. people keep, you know, keep bagging the damn thing, I'll go nine cents, ten cents, twenty dollars a goddamn word if I don't know the entirety of China gets in on the backing. But yeah, <laughs> but you know what I mean. Like, right. yeah, it's it's very very important to me. And then part of the, you know, this is one of the joys of of being uh, a director of a film or an editor or producer of a film, really, I should say, uh, or an editor of a magazine, is you get to turn around and treat creators the way you want to be treated. And that has been part of the real pleasure of doing this. You know, I sort of figured out my process for working with each of the authors over the course of this summer. And I I, I think it went pretty well. I mean, I'm going to refine it a little bit going forward. You know, there's definitely going to be a, after I've come down off of this initial launch, uh, sitting back, making notes, okay, what did we learn? Uh, you mm-hmm. know, I have like a little mm-hmm. staff meeting with like Nathan and Jordan and stuff. Um, and uh, yeah, but I mean, it was fun figuring out the process. And a big part of it was going in, uh, and the authors seemed to appreciate this, was I was like, okay, I want to treat them the way I'd be treated. And so I was like, okay, you know, you come to me with like a draft that's as good as you can get it that you feel is like a really tight, like second to last draft. And then, you know, for those I could, because we have people from all over the world, time zones made it tricky for some. Uh, you know, Daryl Kyogre is over in the Philippines. Robin Marks, who did our book reviews in Japan. We've got authors in uh, North Ireland, in Germany, but also a bunch in North America. And so for anybody I could, I would do like a phone or video call for like, you know, half an hour, an hour. And I would just say, hey, so I've got a bunch of notes and ideas for your story. But first up, 
can you tell me like what was the thing that made you really want to write this story what was the inspiration what got you excited where's your passion right where was the, the seed of that they tell me and i'd be like okay cool second question what is, is there like a theme that you really want to explore, greed or whatever? Is there like a thematic statement you really want to argue? You know, greed is good. Uh, you know, is there something you're trying to say? And they might be like, oh, well, it's, you know, blah, blah, blah. Or actually, I haven't really thought of one, but I really dig X, Y. And I go, okay, cool. Now with those two answers, that's going to shape how I give you my feedback because I want to help you achieve your goals. I don't want to, you know, the magazine has a, an overall voice. You know, I really want to kind of nail this sweet spot between respect for tradition, you know, make sure the stories are recognizable store and sorcery, but also pushing things forward. You know, I have joked uh, in other venues about, uh, to me, the definition of sword and sorcery, and boy, people love to argue about that. Uh, my favorite is uh, Brian Murphy's with his seven points right. that don't all have to be present. It's flexible, and that flexibility is so key. But it's like mm -hmm. seven things that you tend to encounter in sword and sorcery, which I won't recite here, uh, listener, but you can check out his book. It's great. Uh, Flame and Crimson, the History of Sword and Sorcery. Point is, you have these things that, like, if you see them, you're like, okay, there's enough of this stuff that it feels right. It's sword and sorcery. Yeah, okay. And you can imagine almost like a really wild wrestling ring with d different posts marking boundaries each one representing you know um outside of protagonists is one post another one is like you know short episodic you know another one is like uh dark and dangerous magic you know no easy peasy magic systems um that kind of thing so you have those posts right so you got boundaries but then what runs between those posts in a wrestling ring it's like a long rubbery ass rope that you can just bend and push mm -hmm. out keep off of and do cool moves and so there's a flexibility you know sword and sorcery can be so much and still be recognizable as sword and sorcery I mean, even going back to howard's tales where he would drape it like a cloak over other genres you know he would yes. do sword and sorcery essentially western frontier tales he would do sword and sorcery like locked room mysteries uh you know and so on and so forth so uh yeah i would work with them and be like okay well taking your like your what got you excited and like what you maybe want to say or explore uh here's my feedback let's make what you're trying to do work better towards your goals and fit within the like overall voice remit of the magazine and people seem to really dig that so i'm going to keep doing that going forward uh it was, it was really fun to figure out that process because that's how i wish people worked with me and uh, I've, I've been lucky i've had some very good editors and other in screenwriting and, and prose writing context but sometimes i've gotten feedback kind of sucked <laughs> uh you know sometimes i've gotten that thing where people mistakenly think you know i like how i write so that's good everybody should yeah. write like me and mm -hmm. it sounds dumb as hell when i say it out loud but how many people have taken especially like writing courses or picked up writing books that operate from that platform yeah, like I say, a pleasure. Sorry, I've talked a lot of the show, man. I'm just so excited about this yeah. thing. <laughs> but yeah, I mean, all this comes under the, the umbrella of like, you know, it's been fun figuring out what it is to be uh, an editor of a magazine, to work with creative uh, people mm -hmm. and uh, to treat them the way I want to be treated and to understand their side of the exchange because I, I'm on it most of the time. Uh, so yeah, it's been a real, real pleasure to discover that like, yeah, I like being an editor and I think I'm pretty okay at it you know i just gotta cool. get the, uh, the 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 process down uh, a little more streamlined for next time because there was some fumbling and bumbling <laughs> mm -hmm. advertised uh, it all worked out in the end but definitely yeah there's a bit of there's a bit of learning uh stuff in my toe here and there uh, anyway i just feel like i've been talking man ask yeah. me questions tell me to shut up well good. actually actually uh one question regarding the editing yeah you do have episodes on your podcast where you yeah. talk to people about their work I mean, it must have played a hand in sort of giving you an idea of how you wanted to edit or helped you in kind of developing your editing style. It didn't hurt. Yeah, I not for too long now, but I have been doing freelance developmental editing. Uh, go to oliverbrackenbury.com and check it out, folks. Uh, pay me money. I'll edit your story. But seriously, like I'm in the middle of doing a guy's novella right now. Like I do it. And 
uh, I wanted to advertise that business. And I was like, you know, one thing I really love to do is be like, how can one thing I'm doing benefit another thing I'm doing, right? And so like that started with me writing the novel that I was like, I'm gonna do a podcast to build an audience for it. And then the podcast got me people who ended up working in the magazine. Now the magazine's advertising the podcast. <laughs> Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. <laughs> and and me, I guess, by definition, I'm in there, right? So people can find yeah. me and, and find the podcast and learn I'm doing the novel. So it all feeds into each other. And so with editing uh, early this year, I was like, yeah, I want more people to know I do that. And I also want them to know, like, what does that even mean, developmental editing? Like, I can describe it on the website. But uh, so I found a couple of great people, including uh, Nat, my layout guy, and uh, Matt John of the Rose in the House Sword and Sorcerer podcast. Mm-hmm. And they're both brave souls. Matt, uh, I did an incomplete uh, work of his. He was still, you know, kind of trying to get the first draft done. Matt had, uh, I forget how many drafts in, but, you know, pretty, pretty deep in that story that he just was like, I don't know what else to do with it now, you know, so it was much later in the process. And in both cases, I read the stories, uh, worked through them with the, the guys um, live, in quotation marks, in the sense of, like, I just recorded it and then we put it out and people could hear the whole process. And then I would later record me reading their story, put that in front so the reader would be on board with us. They would they would know the tale and then they could hear me chat about uh, it with the, my guests and go through it. And mm. absolutely, like, you'll hear me. What I was saying earlier about, like, you know, I'll ask them, like, what was the thing that got you excited? What was the idea, your ideas you were really wanting to explore? What was it you wanted to say? And then, you know, tailoring my notes, like, as I gave them. Um, yeah, I was definitely doing that in those recordings. So anybody who wants to check them out can get an idea of how I edit when you hire me, but also how I've worked with writers uh, for the magazine. You know, and then that's part part of the fun of doing. I guess this is yeah. It brings me to one thing, which is there's a lot of transparency. You know, I'm never going to publish like the books for the magazine. Frankly, some people do uh, do the super transparent thing, and we'll we'll be like, here's exactly what the finances are. I don't know if I'm old fashioned or what, but I, I I'm not doing that. Uh, that being, <laughs> but anything anything beyond that though, I like I've been very comfortably share, sharing like our downloads and like the approximate amount of physical purchases we received. Amazon's weird about that. Mm-hmm. Uh, I had to kind of guess in these first 24 odd hours. But yeah, I'm comfortable sharing like a lot. And I think it pays dividends because it helps people trust you, right? They can know, okay, well, you know, it's like Subway, right? You can see the guy making the sandwich. <laughs> yeah, yeah. No, he's not wiping his hands on it uh, or he's wearing, mm-hmm. wearing gloves, you know? Um, and and so it helps build trust. It helps uh, build interest because a lot of people like to know, like, how is that thing made? I mean, how many friggin' TV shows are there <laughs> about how is that thing made? Uh, and it's fun for me because it helps me organize my thoughts. You know, I've had people say to me, oh, you're doing this podcast where you share the process, write your novel, and you even like down to like episodes where I will share the outline for, you know, it's a collection of short stories that string together. So I'll be like, here's the one all about outlining this story. And people will be like, oh, what about, are you worried that you'll do that? And you'll tell people like the outline version of the story and then you won't want to write it because you'll feel like you've told it. I'm sure some people's minds work that way. We're all different. For me, it just helps me better organize it, having to explain it to someone else. And it kind of builds hype. And it's also been really handy because like, you know, I, I want to take a break from outlining a few months ago. And I was like, oh, maybe I'll just write a few pages of like the next story in the book. I could go back and listen to me tell me what the outline was. <laughs> yeah. Like it was actually a really good tool for like re-downloading that outline into my That's head. That's actually very good. Yeah. 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 So sharing, uh, you know, there's some things you keep to yourself. And like I said, I personally, like I said, I'm not, probably not going to, I may change my mind. Who knows? But right now I'm, I'm going to keep the finances mostly to myself. But everything else is game. Like, ask me a question on Facebook or Twitter, and if it's, you know, not busting somebody else's privacy, uh, to answer it, I will answer it. You know, mm-hmm. it's fun. How did I get here? You asked me about editing. Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah. Uh, <laughs> sorry, man. I'm still kind of loopy. My mental <clears throat> bandwidth has been so full in this last run up to getting the magazine out, just trying to deal with every little issue and tweak and, and, and so on. But uh, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. My brother is uh, actually, he, uh, he did. He published a uh, a western 
recently. And so he's been dealing with all of the nuances of prepping for layout for print on demand, which has actually been uh, been arduous. It's actually it, it's been quite the quite the task. And he was actually kind of disappointed in how much effort actually has to go in there to to make those things work out, because it's not his his experiences. It's not just a simple matter of say, hey, make this into a physical book. Yeah, I well, it's one of the reasons why, like, I knew from self-pubbing my second novel, I was like, yeah, it's a mess of work. Uh, <laughs> I gotta get somebody else in. And so, like, mm -hmm. you know, and now, like I say, Nathan, uh, Nathan Webb came in and just kicked all kinds of ass. He learned whole new software to do it. Bless him. Uh, you know, he, he he told me what he'd been using for his his, uh, his two magazines. I was like, okay, but I want to try, like, three columns and, and page numbers here and da-da-da-da. And he was like, okay, software magazine can't do that. And I was like, okay. There's Affinity Publisher, which is this Affinity is a company that wants to basically eat Adobe's lunch by producing like I don't want to say copies, but eh, close enough uh, versions of their software that you can just own instead of having to subscribe month after month. Mm. So yeah, we, you know they have a Photoshop equivalent, they have an Illustrator equivalent. We used their uh, InDesign equivalent for layout. So yeah, Affinity Publisher, and like I think that found one or two things about it a little fiddly, but overall it was like a huge upgrade from what he was using before, which in turn came around to benefit his his stuff his two magazines, which I loved, right? I want everybody involved to benefit from this thing as much as humanly possible. Um, and uh, yeah, you know, it took some learning, but it benefited us ultimately because it let us do basically everything we wanted. Mm -hmm. you know, any, anything that's in, in layout-wise, anything that's not in the magazine is not there, but either because like, you, I forgot. <laughs> there were one or two very small things. I was like, oh yeah, we could have done that. You know what? I'm not delaying the magazine to put that in. We'll do that issues one or two. Right. Uh, right, you know, right. And I think there was maybe one thing that was like, like the justification of the text was very tricky and we could have kept fiddling with that forever. Uh, and we were like, okay, we'll fiddle with this more later, but right now it feels pretty good. Pretty mm -hmm. good. Mm -hmm. uh, but yeah, definitely there's one or two pages where I'm like, ah, the gap between these two words is too wide. Sure. Uh, you know, that kind of thing, whatever. Sure. I mean, there's nothing in this magazine that makes me feel embarrassed. There's nothing in this magazine I'm going to feel the need to like apologize when I like hand them a copy, you know, and I'm like, mm -hmm. oh, don't pay too much attention to page 10. <laughs> yeah, like, <laughs> right. You know, well, honestly, I... like it's not, it's, it's empirically not as good as say Tales from the Magician's Skull because it's, you know, thrown together by uh, a bunch of people in a couple of months on no money uh, compared to mm -hmm. something that's backed by Goodman Games and has like, you know, have oh, yeah. working pros on it. But honestly, with, uh, when Ken I Kelly it, covers and yeah, stuff yeah. like that, you, you know. know. Um, but I gotta say, you know, I, I grabbed. Um, it takes a while for it to get to Canada, uh, to my friendly local gaming store. But I got issue seven of Tales from Magician Skull, and I held it beside my proofing copy of my magazine, and I, I was like, this looks okay. Mm -hmm. You know, I mean, mm -hmm. I know which one has the higher production quality, for no, no doubt. Um, but sure, this this feels okay, you know. Yeah, which was a it was a nice feeling, and it gives me a lot of hope for what we can do. And like I say, this uh, what do you call it, money? Uh, yeah. Well, it <laughs> it would be it would be wonderful if it was successful. I I still remember, I mean, uh, the heartbreak. I literally I experienced heartbreak when Blackgate had to stop printing, went all digital, and the 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 website is actually. Uh, very good, but the 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 fiction turnout is nothing like I remember when I had you know when you'd get that print copy in your hands, nice big thick book too. I mean magazine. I just and it was just so sad when that happened. Yeah, it's tricky business. I do not know any of the ins and outs of that, so I will not attempt to comment on it intelligently. But I do have big respect for Blackgate, and I do really appreciate them. Seth Lindbergh uh, works with them on their content a lot. And bless him, he's, he's going to help us get an article out on the magazine. Uh, mm -hmm, on mm -hmm. So that's cool. 
But it does bring you around to, like, one of the angles that, like, I'm about to go, you know, neck deep in. I was already thinking about it, of course, leading up to now, but most of my energies have been in producing the magazine. Now it's out. I'm thinking about promotion, right? And so, yeah, like, I'm here talking to you, of course. Uh, and and I think one thing I would suggest, you know, because I've, I've, I've um, got a couple of buddies. Like, for example, uh, Gilead. Uh, he goes by a modern right. name, so just Gilead. Uh, he did our marvelous original painted cover on a big mm-hmm. canvas, be a beautiful piece of work. Uh, bless him. And, and he just came in and was like, I'm enthusiastic about this thing. Can I help? And I was like, we could use a cover, a cover. You know, like that's that's good value, man. What a generous gift. And so I really want to bring him back and pay him what he's worth. Again, that crowdfunding campaign. Oh, you know. Mm-hmm. Uh, but anyway, sorry. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm repeating myself there. But yeah. pr- promotion, you know, he's doing a Kickstarter right now. Yeah, yeah, he's he's trying to get out a book of his art and hope to do more. And you know, yeah, he does really good stuff. I really like. By the way, there's a lot of things to say for Gilead's art. But one thing I really love is that he has a really powerful grasp of anatomy, which may sound like a backhanded compliment to some people. But mother of God, look at like a lot of the art out there uh, mm-hmm. in general, but in particular stuff that winds up on say indie self pub uh, covers. Again, you know, I totally respect money is a is a limitation, but. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. I love that Gilead, like he is constantly doing, you know, um, life studies and stuff like that and sharing his work online, which is cool. You can, you can Mm -hmm. watch his live stream on his Facebook, uh, you know, group and all that. Uh, Yeah. He really understands the body, which I think is very important for this particular genre. Sword and Sorcerer to me is very rooted in the body um, in a number of ways, but that's a whole nother discussion. Yeah. I really, I really like his pencil. I really like his line where his, his pencil sketches, and stuff that uh he'll put up and i think the i think uh, one of those is at, at least a sketchbook because i think it, uh, i you know what we're here we are co- talking about it and i can't even remember all the details because i think it was like two books he was even looking at or something like that but uh i know he wants um, to do more down the line so maybe that's okay. what you're thinking of. I, I believe it is a sketchbook that is available okay the yeah but my yeah. point mentioning that is that like gilead is just like one example of, of like a few people who've been talking to me lately being like yeah so like i'm thinking about promoting like my thing in this case the like, kickstarter you know you got any thoughts on that because they know i'm thinking hard on the magazine and mm. this is my big piece of advice for i think anybody in any scene look outside of it right promote within it of course but i mean look outside of it as well because i don't know i just i just feel like 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 i i especially sort of, i'll talk about the one i know best which is sword and sorcery uh, someone comes out with a self-help novel they poured their heart into it they've worked on it you know very diligently they've done what they can with their time energy money to get a, a cool cover and, and maybe they've even got someone to proofread it whatever all this time and energy right and then you just watch them share it every day or two on the same like half dozen or more Facebook groups, just over and over and over again, just sharing on the same groups, the same audiences, those groups that frankly are not huge. Like I say, the audience needs to grow, man. Um, And also not everybody's on Facebook. And very quickly you watch like the engagement with those posts is drop and drop and drop. You know, nobody's liking them anymore because <laughs> everybody's like, yeah, I know. I saw it last week and the week before <laughs> and the week before, you know, they got it. And, and some, you know, and then that's, and that's all they're doing. And, and it's just like, you know, reach out to publications like Blackgate within the scene, but also look outside of it. Like I absolutely respect and love the sword and sorcery scene. And I've been very happy to get on, like say Rogues in the house was very cool and had me on to discuss the thing. Uh, Blackgate, like I say, has got that article coming out and so on and so forth. 
But I'm 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 hell bent for leather to go outside of it. I'm looking into avenues. Oh yeah. That I you know like like I, like I want to find booktubers and talk to them. Uh, they just like fantasy in general. You know the like spec fic in general. They're just like reading in general. Oh my god. Mm-hmm. You know like go broad, get it out there. Right. Uh, and 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 think about avenues that aren't necessarily even like colonized by your particular scene. Like there are a few people talking about sword and sorcerer on YouTube, but there's like three. Whereas there's way more people talking about spec fic in general. And so, yeah, like go mm-hmm. out, go outside your scene and don't just, oh God, just don't do the thing of just hitting up the same Facebook groups every couple of days. Well, I think, yeah. I think uh, no one of the know. problems, there's a feeling of isolation. There's a feeling of yeah. we are, you know, not many people get sword and sorcery. So it's, it's just us. And I think that that can end up becoming its own little vicious circle because we end up talking to ourselves And we need to branch out. That's one of the reasons why I bring up the Whetstone Discord on the podcast is I want to try to expand things a little bit and get people interested and see see if we can do that push out like you're mentioning. And I think that's a that's a very good point. It also brings me just actually back to the magazine, uh, but this could be relevant to other projects uh, that other people are doing, I'm sure. I, it was an experiment, you know, I originally I was going to have maybe just the five authors that I knew and they're all from the scene and it's all good. And then I read in the Queer Blades anthology, which is sort of, I think it started as an SNS project, but it kind of grew to just be a broader like fantasy in general with like a focus mm-hmm. on, on, on queer uh, creators and queer content. Um, and I checked out some stories and there was one by uh, TK Rex that blew me away, really mm. grabbed me. It was definitely more like contemporary fantasy leaning towards even a fairy tale. And there was another story in the anthology that was definitely way more recognizable as straight SNS, but it, it, I won't be cruel and name anybody, of course, but it did not do it for me. And I thought to myself, I was like, well, am I going for brand recognition or am I going for talent? Like, yeah, I want talent. And so I reached out to uh, Taya, TK Rex, and I was like, hey, you know, your story is cool. I would not personally call it sword and sorcery, uh, which is, it comes back to the other issue, right? Sword and sorcery. The term is very diluted. So that's just why I make a point in kind of being like, well, what's new edge sword and sorcery? Well, okay, well, what's sword and sorcery to begin with? So mm-hmm. I get into that in the magazine. But anyway, uh, I reached out to Ted and I was like, hey, you know, uh, you don't know me. Uh, so me asking for unpaid labor kind of sucks. But here's the pitch. Blah. Told her, told her about the magazine, told her what I'm trying to do. And then I was like, you know, why don't you give us a shot? You know, do me that next to last draft. We'll look at it together. And if my notes on how to like make it more sword and sorcery, like repulse you, that's cool. Run for the hills, no obligation, take it elsewhere, sell it elsewhere. But if you like it, it's like a challenge to try and work within the genre while still expressing yourself. Awesome. Luckily, you know, we got along well. She liked my editing process. Uh, She took on my notes. She did an excellent job with them. And her story is definitely not going to be mistaken for like Robert E. Howard's Tower of the Elephant. But I think it does fit into sort of the more mythic Baroque kind of sword sorcery tradition. You know, she doesn't sound like Clark Ashton Smith, but maybe, you know, Clark Ashton Smith, like the kind mm-hmm. of bigger, weirder, stranger, like I say, more mythic stuff. Um, and I really look forward to working with her again for issues one and two and then continue to, to build that. Point set being, I brought in someone new who then was like, oh, yeah, I watched Primal and the Northman to get in the vibe. Felt good. You know, I'm getting like, she's she personally is getting into it. So that's cool. That's one more reader, one more fan. But mm-hmm. also she brings her audience. And I'm now looking at building my tables of contents for issues one and two. And yeah, mostly I'm looking at sword and sorcery people. I'm looking at people who are like adjacent, like, you know, people who might write like grimdark or epic fantasy. You know, I'm looking at a horror author who has never written a fantasy, but boy, does she know horror. And if there's one genre that is absolutely in the DNA of sword and sorcery, it's horror. Yes. 
So I just think, you know, you got to look outside the scene to bring people in. And that goes to uh, creators as well. And I think that's a great way to like get an infusion of some interesting creative elements on the page, but also they bring their audiences in and make it bigger. So I mm-hmm. guess that comes back to what I was saying about promotion in general with like looking for venues outside of your little scene. Right. And yeah, I, it was funny because I, I did mention this to a couple of people uh, privately. I was like, yeah, I think I'm going to bring in an author from outside the scene. So what I'm doing. And I, I don't want to say they pushed back, but they were kind of like, what are you doing? There's so many sword sorcery authors that would love to be in your magazine. They would love to be in your magazine. What are you doing going outside? And I was like, well, <laughs> I explained mm-hmm. what I just said to you, because it's like, how can you grow a thing without going outside? You can't, you know, well, okay. I would say you can't, but I would say it's, it's much slower to just, you know, focus on the stories and make the good thing and hope that people notice it. You know, you got to push it out there. And, and that by definition means going outside. That's well, that, and way. that'll also, I think, um, help to, to grow or adapt the definition of sword and sorcery, which you've mentioned, of course, that we have the boy, oh boy, are there robust discussions of what it is, right? But if you get someone on the outside, give them the challenge of stepping into it, bringing their own vision of what that would end up being, and you cultivate that, I think that that actually would be very good for the goal of the new edge in the first place. So yeah, yeah, like I mean, one aspect of the of the whole new edge sword and sorcery thing that has gotten a lot of discussion and rightly so because it's important and you can talk about it a lot. I did a very long interview with Bobby Derry on his site focused mm-hmm. on this aspect of mm-hmm. diversion. You know, DEI is a phrase I myself only learned this year. I don't want to come off like, oh, I know everything here. Uh, and then also, by the way, I'm just sharing what I know. I'm just putting it out there. I know I'm probably sounding very prescriptive, but that's only because it would be tedious if I said, in my opinion, at the end of every sentence. Uh, right. <laughs> uh, but yeah, diversity, equity, inclusion, like what does that mean? It just means that, you know, uh, making a place friendly for everybody and making uh, sure that everybody, as much as you can within the limitations of time, energy, et cetera, uh, is represented. So I've gone out of my way not to have a table of contents that's like exclusively middle-aged white guys. Right. But like, we're here, baby. Like, I'm the editor talking right now, and, uh, you know, David C. White bringing in sort of the, maybe a little, little past middle-aged plus. Thanks. I love you, David. Uh, you know, <laughs> um, but also making a point, just thinking, like, intentionally about, like, who I brought in to write. Uh, and, and uh you know how the content of the magazine is uh to make sure it's just friendly for for everybody you know regardless of race sexuality gender uh, ethnicity nationality that kind of thing and the reason i bring that up i guess uh coming off of what you were saying about uh bringing folk in and, and uh, experimenting a bit with the genre and so on is because you get that by bringing in more people out of broader groups like that will influence the creativity they will bring mm-hmm. in just whole ways of thinking that would probably never occur to you. And that is so valuable and so important because sword sorcery really needs to be constantly evolving, but I think it can evolve while still being recognizable. Like I said earlier about the flexibility and it's important to never give into the illusion that it was ever in a perfected state. And this comes to everything we're talking about, right? The definition will never be perfected. It's just this kind of vibe, you know, the bunch of like elements, you know, that we can kind of share and talk and pass down to the youngins and, and, mm-hmm. and you know, tell them to study the canon kind of thing. But, I you know, you run into people, we've all run into these people who think, you know, oh, well, they perfected it in the 70s. What? You know, like, oh, well, you know, Robert E. Howard or nothing. You know, you run into those absolute cultists who, yeah. generally speaking, when you talk to them and you hear what they think it is and what they think Howard is, you can find examples in Howard's own work 
that doesn't count as sword and sorcery according to them. So whatever that's about, I don't know. I mean, the world's a big scary place, lots happening. I mean, you know, you're trying to uh, put order into the one thing that you think you have control over, and that makes you feel less scared about climate change. I guess, uh, tell me that Howard, <laughs> you know, wrote five stories that count as sword and sorcery and everything else is garbage. Um, but uh, to me, the healthy thing is to just acknowledge to yourself that the discussion over definition will never truly end. It can totally get exhausting. I don't blame anyone for stepping back from it. I don't engage every time, but find yourself to a place that works for you and just share it with others and see what the consensus is and work from there. Just, just know it's never going to mm -hmm. be over as far as that goes. The uh, discussion over what is the perfect way to handle diversity, equity, inclusion, and make things inclusive and friendly in a way that doesn't like, you know, step on any toes or accidentally misrepresent anything, that conversation is never going to be over. You know, I know I'm not doing a perfect job with that with issue zero. I already have ideas of how I'm going to improve on that angle going forward. I have ideas of how I'm going to improve every angle going forward with the magazine because that's what always happens, right? You finish the project or you almost finish the project and then you're like, oh, I already know how I'm going to do everything better. Mm -hmm. um, and so I think just for one's own sanity, you just have to go, look, man, it's going to be constantly evolving because everything's going to be constantly evolving until I'm dead, at which point I guess I'm done. You know, I'm evolving to worm food. Uh, yeah, yeah. And so, you know, that's cool though, but that's just how it goes. And so, yeah, you got to keep bringing in new stuff to keep it evolving. And if you just have the same crew gradually getting older, all arguing about how, you know, it was it was one and done in the late 70s. No, it was one and done in uh, 82 with the movie with Conan. Uh, no, wait, it was done, you know, in the 34 when Howard blew his brains out, poor guy. You know, like, just stop looking for a final point of resolution because you're not going to find it. Right. I think that's a very, I think that's a, a crucial, actually a crucial point. I mean, one like you had mentioned earlier, uh, sword and sorcery. I think is very flexible, very adaptable. Um, I think Howard was going in that way. You mentioned his suicide. It, to me, one of the tragedies is he was only thirty. Yeah, he was only thirty. I, I'm I'm just a handful of way uh, years away from being twice his age, living twice as long as him, and. And to see where he could have gone. What about the Robert E. Howard who saw World War II, who lived through the Cold War? The Robert E. Howard who saw the civil rights movement. What would we have got? The Robert E. Howard who was there, you know, he, he would be David C. Smith's or Adrian Cole's age at the time of the resurgence in the 60s yes. and 70s, what you know? second wave Howard had Oh, oh. What would a Howard, you know, some of the stuff you're mentioning, I, I think about how the atom bomb uh, had a bigger impact, um, you know, in real life, but uh, <laughs> a couple of them I hear, but um, mm -hmm. definitely, uh, it, you know, that had a huge impact on fiction, huge impact on fiction. Yeah. And I, I, I wonder yeah. what he would have done with that. You know, yeah. if he would have had some sort of metaphor in Sword and Sorcery, if he would have inspired him to go, uh, the hell with Sword and Sorcery. I'm going to focus on science fiction now. Or, or, or something. On... Yeah. If, if he had seen um, Andre Norton's Starman's Son, Daybreak 2250 AD, which is, which is a, a, a post apocalyptic fantasy, uh, would he have been like, oh, wow, mutants and super science and. Yeah, you know, Howardian post-apocalyptic fantasy. My God, what an interesting concept, especially yeah. given the cyclical nature of the rise and fall of civilizations and yeah. pour over them. That's uh, his meat so and potatoes. Yeah. yeah. I mean, yeah. he was already he was already experimenting. Beyond yes. the Black River, which is yes. my favorite. Uh, Red Nails, which which is another favorite, and indisputably one of the one of the very best. Those were those came in late in the game for him and you could see him 
playing and and stretching and doing more instead of just a simple medieval tale with some magic thrown in and 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 just where that could have gone in many ways i i want to feel because just to be uh, up front with you i'm an aspiring writer i want to write some in 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 the future and i i feel uh in some ways we're we're continuing that tradition that he never got to continue that he cut himself off from to take it in those new directions where can we go where can where can it go what can happen with it which i think could be very exciting yeah and i just yeah to me i i I, yeah it's like you have to protect some core stuff i suppose so you still recognize what the thing is if you have no lines if you have no boundaries you have a blank page you have literally nothing but i do generally speaking err on the side of adding and experimenting and because i find that so much more exciting it can take you places you haven't been it can help you find new depths and new angles to the thing that you love sure it's so much better than me the reductive thing of hewing it down and going well this isn't sns and this isn't sns and blah 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 and you know you get people who say oh, well errol elric isn't sns it's like well he's one of the the big three you know sort of him fabric gray master kind of jealous one right and conan right really and also he was and how did we get elric he was written as a kind of opposition, a kind of way a of response. turning Conan inside out. Yeah. Right? So what's the next thing? Like, if I get the opportunity to ever talk to Michael Moorcock, I would love to ask him. I would say to him, hey, man, if you were a young author today who'd read Elric, and then you were tasked with a response to Elric, what would that be? Because I don't think wow. you'd pop Elric inside out. You know, this hypothetical young guy would pop Elric inside out and get back to Conan. I think he would, right. you know, he would be a person of this era, uh, he or she or they. And uh, and would and would we'd be like okay well Elric was X uh, my thing is gonna be Y and like what is that I don't know I'm oh. gonna find out that's so fun to think about so that's yeah, a magnificent yeah. question too my God I hope someday you get to see him <laughs> I I really do I really do I would yeah. I would be it'd be a dream of mine to get to uh, chat with Michael Morcock never mind work with him or have him in the magazine oh my goodness can you imagine mm-hmm. so mm-hmm. yeah yeah so it's just this thing of like. Yeah, I love the past, respect the past, but uh, you know, build on it like anything else. If you, if you, if that's all you're, if that's the only direction you're looking, that's fine for like something Cajun Amber. You know, it's interesting actually. I spoke with a guy, um, Neil Meacham, who is the uh, one of the main organizers of the annual. Well, it's been struck by COVID, but anyway, long-running annual Pulp Magazine show in Toronto. Where mm. it's exactly what it sounds like, you know, it's a little convention, uh, and a lot of people come in with all the boxes, all the old pulps, and they buy them and trade them and chat about them. It's a great time. You can find all kinds of good stuff, including, of course, sword and sorcery. I interviewed him for another podcast uh, that I've done called Unknown Worlds of the Merrill Collection. Each episode is about a different genre thing, and that was the episode on the pulps. And at one point in that conversation, relative to what we're saying here, I said to Neil, "Hey, so you know, do you think like you know pulp?" style pulp fiction has had some uh, resurgences here and there but it's been quiet for a while uh do you think it's coming back do you think you know we could come back is it alive now and i'm just not aware of something neil surprised me he said you know honestly like speaking for me and some other guys i know who love this stuff and have dedicated their their lives to it it's dead and we're fine with that <laughs> he was like the pulse went to i can't remember the year go listen to the episode folks uh sorry but he was like he named a year and he's like around here is when it stopped and that's fine 
me and my buddies, we like that period. That's what we love. And that's cool because, like, you know, if that's their relationship to the thing, that's what they want it to be. That's cool. What drives me a little wild sometimes is people who want to, like, want it to be more popular, but also kind of want it to be like a dead thing. And you do seem to run into those and so on. And I don't think they're the majority by far, but you do run into them enough. Uh, and it's part of the reason why I want to grow the audience because I want to find more people who are like, don't want it to be a dead thing because I want to be a live thing. I want to be a live and exciting, vibrant thing, growing uh, bigger and stronger and weirder. Uh, yeah forward and building on um you know responding to the past like i say i want to i want to see that next stage that thing that rips off elric responding to the world we live in now and mm-hmm. yes yeah keep keep moving forward because i personally really connect with the outsider hero aspect of sword and sorcery and that strong sense of identity that pretty much all certainly all the major ones that you'll hear about conan etc uh but most pretty much all the major characters have it's like I am I tell you I am. You don't tell me who I am. You know, mm-hmm. Conan is a Sumerian. He is from the north. Where he goes, he brings himself, and people can try and make him assimilate, but he never does. Even when, you know, late in his adventures, he becomes king of the biggest kingdom in, you know, Aquilonia. You know, he's the most now I'm the ruler of the biggest civilization. You'd think, you know, he would assimilate. He not really. No. <laughs> No. Yeah. <laughs> and that and that keeps some of the tension going in those stories. It's great. And I love that. And it's part of why I think that uh coming back to the DEI thing, I think that uh Sword Sorcery is so ripe for more diverse creators to come in and do their thing. I am I I'm sure it exists out there. I have not seen it though yet. Um I am dying to read a trans author's sword and sorcery tale about a trans protagonist because yes. so perfect for someone to be like, I am telling you who I am. Mm-hmm. You don't tell me who I am. Right. This is so right. And and in Sword Sorcery protagonists, by and large, they succeed by because of who they are, not in spite of who they are. And by and large, like they don't uh, win, you know, the story if they, you know, if there's like a winning condition by like joining the police, like this, you know, joining the kingdom, joining, you know, assimilating with the structures of power. By and mm. large, they punch upward against like the rulers of the universe, you know, the kings and the fat, greedy merchants and so on and so forth. Well, and the skinny, greedy merchants. Sorry, fat people, I shouldn't say that. <laughs> and uh, yeah, which, by the way, I also want to see more uh, variety of body types uh, in this uh, work as well. So I look forward to that. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, uh, I just I love that so much. And even as someone who benefits from basically every privilege uh, except for wealth would be nice to have that. You know, I am a, a straight, white, cisgender, hetero guy you know, sort of lower middle class, but whatever. I'm, 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 I'm much more comfortable than a lot of poor folk. Um, I benefit from all that. And yet I still connect with it because I think we all feel kind of downtrodden. We all kind of feel uh, told who we are by others sometimes or told to be something that we don't want to be or it doesn't vibe with our values. And I think SMS is just so good for that. I love it. And that's something like, yeah, that's something I want to try and carry through the magazine, through its stories. Anyway. Yeah, I will I think, literally talk forever. No, that I, I was going to I was just going to say that 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 is actually, I think, a great note to end on, because I think that's a, a wonderful point to make about sword and sorcery. The uh, that's one of my things that I love, the self-actualized hero. I am who I am and you can't tell me who that is. And I think that's a great point to end on for this. It can be it can be just so accepting. Like if it, you know, if we just, yeah, yeah. I want yeah. I want to bring everybody in. I want to pay the creators mm-hmm. all the money. I just want to make this a big fun part. Well, there's there's those. more there's more that we can talk about, and I'd like to do that in the future, maybe even before February, when you're thinking of the crowdfunding. 
Yeah, but, that would be awesome if we could have a chat, maybe run up to the crowdfunding. I, I could we get into the details of that, and uh, it yeah. will help promote the campaign, which I will oh. be looking to do. <laughs> yeah. So, so Oliver Brackenberry, Brackenbury. <laughs> yeah. Right. Um, editor, publisher, just the man behind the scenes for the New Edge Sword and Sorcery magazine. Go to newedgeswordandsorcery.com. Get on the mailing list so you can get the news about the future uh, crowdfunding. Also, get the free EPUB, the free PDF, and look at Amazon for the soft cover and hard cover sold at cost. Yeah, at cost. Four bucks for the soft cover. Get one for your friend. Why not? (laughs) Mm -hmm. Spread the word. Spread the word. Thank you once again, Shock Monkeys, for this indulgence. We hope you enjoyed the interview as much as we did. And we'll be back next week with a brand new regularly scheduled Geek Shock. And until then, have a great weekend. Bye.